Change starts today. And we're talking about courage, bravery, the willingness to face danger, risk, fear, square in the eye. This will take a couple minutes, but it's worth it. The French had collapsed. The Dutch had been overwhelmed. The Belgians had surrendered. The British army trapped, fought free, and felt back towards the channel ports, converging on a fishing town whose name was Dunkirk. It was England's greatest crisis since the Norman Conquest. Vaster than those precipitated by Philip II's Spanish Armada, Louis XIV's triumphant armies, or Napoleon's invasion barges massed at Boulogne. This time, Britain stood alone. If the Germans crossed the channel and established uncontested beachhead, all would be lost. For it is a peculiarity of England's island that its southern weald is indefensible against disciplined troops. Now the 220,000 Tommies at Dunkirk, Britain's only hope seemed doomed. On the Flanders beaches, they stood around in angular existential attitudes, like dim purgatorial souls awaiting disposition. There appeared to be no way to bring home more than a handful of them. The Royal Navy's vessels were inadequate. King George VI had been told that they would be lucky to save 17,000. The House of Commons was warned to prepare for hard and heavy tidings. Then, from the streams and estuaries of Kent and Dover, a strange fleet appeared. Trawlers and tugs, scows and fishing sloops, lifeboats and pleasure crafts, smacks and coasters, the island ferry grade fields, Tom Sotwith's American Cup Challenger Endeavor, even the London Fire Brigade's fire float, Massey Show, all of them manned by civilian volunteers, English fathers sailing to rescue England's exhausted, bleeding sons. Even today, what followed seems miraculous. Not only were Britain's soldiers delivered, so were the French support troops, a total of 338,682 men. But wars are not won by fleeing from the enemy, and British morale was still unequal to the imminent challenge. These were the same people who less than a year earlier had rejoiced in the fake peace brought by the betrayal of Czechoslovakia at Munich. Most of their leaders and most of the press remained craven. It had been over a thousand years since Alfred the Great had made himself and his countrymen one and sent them into battle transformed. Now, in this new exigency, confronted by the mightiest conqueror Europe had known, England looked for another Alfred, a figure cast in a mold which, by the time of the Dunkirk deliverance, seemed to have been lost forever. England's new leader, were he to prevail, would have to stand for everything England's decent, civilized establishment had rejected. They viewed Adolf Hitler as the product of complex social and historical forces. Their successor would have to be a passionate Manichaean who saw the world as a medieval struggle to the death between the powers of good and the powers of evil, who held that individuals are responsible for their actions and that the German dictator was therefore wicked. A believer in martial glory was required, one who saw splendor in the ancient parades of victorious legions through Persepolis and could rally the nation to brave the coming German fury. An embodiment of fading Victorian standards was wanted, a tribune for honor, loyalty, duty, and the supreme virtue of action, one who would never compromise with iniquity, who would create a sublime mood and thus give men heroic visions of what they were and might become. 
Like Adolf Hitler, he would have to be a leader of intuitive genius, a born demagogue in the original sense of the word, a believer in the supremacy of his people and national destiny, an artist who knew how to gather the blazing light of history into his prism and then distort it to his ends, an embodiment of inflexible resolution who could impose his will and his imagination on his people. A great tragedian who understood the appeal of martyrdom and could tell his followers the worst, hurling it to them like great hunks of bleeding meat, persuading them that the year of Dunkirk would be one in which it was equally good to live or to die, who could, if necessary, be just as cruel, just as cunning, just as ruthless as Hitler, but who could win victories without enslaving populations or preaching supernaturalism or foisting off myths of his infallibility or destroying or even warping the libertarian institutions he had sworn to preserve. Such a man, if he existed, would be England's last chance. In London, there was such a man. And thus begins one of my favorite books of all time, the three-volume biography of Winston Churchill that was written by a World War II soldier and then journalist and historian William Manchester. And it was Churchill who, for a time, was the roar of the lion that was England when they stood alone against Nazi Germany and said to people, I say to you, I have nothing to offer but blood and sweat and toil and tears. Um, he is one of the great pictures, one of the great examples of the character strength we're looking at today. Change is coming today. You can change. And it is this remarkable quality of courage. Some of our favorite stories in the Bible, even people who don't know the Bible very well, are stories of courage, a frightened Moses somehow, through the power of God, going to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, and saying, let my people go. In Israel, there was such a man, a boy named David, putting on soldier and then... Uh, uh, armor that was way too big for him, and then just going alone with a slingshot to face a giant named Goliath. Daniel being thrown into a lion's den, or his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being told they must bend the knee or else they will have to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And their statement is, O king, we will not do it for our God can deliver us. But we want you to know, O king, even if he will not, even if he should not, we will not bend the knee. A beauty queen named Esther, who had a lot to live for, youth and beauty and wealth and fame and power, saying to her uncle Mordecai, when the history of God's people, the fate of a nation, the prospect of genocide hung on her slender soldiers, I will go to the king. And if I perish, I perish. We are deeply stirred by that. And so I want to talk for a moment about... Uh, why this courage is so important to you and to me. There is a remarkable book. It's been almost 30 years ago now that it was written, and it's called Self-Esteem, Paradoxes, and Innovation in Clinical Theory by a couple of authors, I think Bednar and Peterson are their names. And the paradox in self-esteem is, of course, this oddity that there's very little correlation between all the qualities we think of as being admirable, uh, beauty, 
intelligence, being successful, being wealthy. People can have all of those, and they may have very low self-esteem. And so they looked at all the studies that were done around self-esteem, and they found this single common thread that it all has to do with what in psychology is called approach and avoidance. That when you're facing a difficult situation, if you avoid it, if you don't look it square in the eye, if you wimp out, if you run away, even if things turn out well, uh, your sense of well-being, esteem, goes down. But if you approach it, if you look it head-on, if you move towards it, if you show courage, if you do the difficult thing, even if the situation turns out badly, there's this surge of life inside you. And I think that is deeply a part of the reality of the kingdom in our midst. Your kingdom that God has given you is the range of your effective will. And when you summon that will, even though, as Kipling says in his poem, if after your heart and nerve and sinew are all worn out, there's nothing left within you except the will that says to them, hold on. And you say, hold on. There is life in that. So, the invitation for you today is take one thing that produces fear inside you and move towards it. My friend Blues, who was with the Marines for many decades, talked about this quality that they would say where you run towards the fire. You run towards the gunfire. Where everybody else runs away from the danger, that's kind of the human instinct. You run towards it for the sake of your sisters and brothers. And the question I want to encourage you to ask that I'll sometimes think about is, what's the worst that can happen? Paul's writing about this in Romans fear and uh, in Romans 8, and he talks about uh, whatever we're facing, trouble, hardship, famine, persecution, danger, nakedness, sword. So we fear, no, why not? None of those things is able to separate us from the love of God. So what's the worst that can happen to you? Death itself. You may need extraordinary courage today. I think of a woman I know who took a step forward to call into the light which, what had been in darkness and knew that she would be opposed and um, the subject of a lot of hostility, and she was and she did it anyway. I'm just still staggered by that. And then I think of everyday courage. I need courage today. That's part of why I'm telling you this message. Just when life seems difficult, uh, you know, the words that Dante said were over the portal of hell for people that entered. Those words were, abandon hope, all you who enter here. And if today you need maybe not the extraordinary courage to do something unbelievably life-threatening, maybe you need that. Maybe it's just, I got to keep going in this situation, in this difficulty, with this ache, with this anxiety, with this depression, facing this opposition. I have to put one foot in front of another one and I got to keep going. You keep going because it is hope that lies before us that enables courage. So. One thing today that you're afraid to do, one email you're afraid to write, one conversation you're a little bit afraid to have, could be something tiny. Um, you've been putting off looking at your finances, and so you're going to take a look, just, you know, um, five minutes. Uh, 
You don't like cold, so you're going to take a cold shower. Whatever it is, just something so you can know, I did it. There's life in it. There's kingdom in it. There's change in it. And change starts today. Hey, it's Tim. I'm the producer here at Become New. I wanted to let you know, if you'd like more resources or teaching from John, you can find it at our website, becomenew.com. Also, if you'd like to receive a text alert or the daily email that goes along with each video, let us know at becomenew.com slash subscribe. Lastly, if you need prayer, we'd love to pray for you. There's a group of us who meet each weekday, Monday through Friday, to pray over requests that are sent in from listeners. And so you can text us your prayer requests at the number 855-888-0444. We'll catch you next time.